Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 142, and we're going to talk about heat. Yes, it's that time of year when we're trying to get the heat into our vans rather than getting the heat out of our vans, and there's a reason we need to talk about it. We're also going to talk about serpentine belts, and I've got a story about that. A tale from the road involving a tractor and Utah and bees, and a product review of the Sprinter NCV3. Yeah. Welcome back. Very happy to have you here. Uh, It's been a very eventful week for me, and I could spend this entire episode going over a litany of issues I've had, but I won't do that because that's not why we're here. However, I do have to mention one thing. I don't really keep track of stats for the show. They're distracting, and I don't want to make the show to try to increase stats. I just want to have fun. I want you guys to have fun, and I hope that's what we're doing here. But I did take a peek at these stats that come in my email once a week, and I was surprised to see that my podcast in the last few weeks was number 10 in travel podcasts in Ukraine. And at first you're like, oh, wow, that's great. Lots of people are listening. And then you have to take a step back and ask yourself, why? Why are people in Ukraine listening to a podcast about living in vehicles? Yeah. So that gave me a little bit of pause. And it's not the first time I've noticed an increase in Ukrainian listens. So, folks, if you are from Ukraine and you are hearing me right now, if there is something I can do on this show that will help you, Please write to me at jeff at builttogo.com. That's two T's, not three, not one. And one of the things I thought was, well, winter's coming to Ukraine, and they're going to have many of the same problems we're going to have here in the States. And I bet something they're very concerned about is heating their vans. And so I thought I would just do kind of an intro to heating your van episode. I mean, why am I doing an intro episode at episode 142? Because the show doesn't have listeners that listen from episode one all the way through. A lot of people will find the show and start listening episode 100 or 120, or maybe they only catch an episode here or there, whatever. It's all completely fine. But I think it's necessary to do a an overview episode of ways to heat your van, and that's what we're going to do right now. I have broken this down from simplest to least simple, and what we end up talking about a lot of the times are the most complicated ways to heat your van, and we spend an awful lot of time talking about insulation, which probably we shouldn't, but what we should actually spend some more time talking about is, what are you trying to heat inside your van? Well, it's you. (laughs) We're trying to keep you warm, and maybe your pets, but we're just going to focus on people for the time being. The number one most important, easiest, simplest way for you to keep yourself warm in the van is to have a good sleeping bag. Yes, it's true. I personally don't like sleeping in sleeping bags. I would rather have a bed made up, and I often have my van with the bed made up rather than a sleeping bag. But if you're talking about just needing to stay warm, yes, a sleeping bag is the way to go. Now, I'm going to have to go through these quickly because there's a lot to talk about, but briefly about sleeping bags, all you need to know is to check the temperature rating of the sleeping bag and know that that rating is not a comfort level. It is a survival level. So if your sleeping bag says it goes down to zero degrees Fahrenheit or say negative 15 Celsius, 
Know that you will stay alive at that temperature, but you won't be comfortable. So if you want to stay comfortable at that temperature, you have to go significantly lower. Any sleeping bag that says it's only good down to 50 Fahrenheit or, say, 12 degrees Celsius, well, um, yeah, that's basically a blanket. I mean, it's a blanket that wraps around you. And I actually use those all summer long, so they're fine. So sleeping bag, spend some money on that because that will always keep you warm under whatever conditions. But there are strategies for using a sleeping bag. You don't want to sleep on the hard metal floor of your van, obviously, so you want to get yourself insulated from the metal floor. That's pretty easy. But another thing you want to do is limit the amount of space you're trying to heat, and this this applies to all of these suggestions here. If you've got a big van or you've got a small van, you really only want to keep the space around your body warm. So I kid you not, consider one of these two strategies. Set up a tent inside your van. Yeah, it sounds crazy. Your van is a metal tent, right? I say that all the time. But if you're trying to conserve heat, a tent will keep you maybe 10 degrees warmer, even though it's just a thin nylon surface. And the smaller the tent, the better. I have a standalone single-person tent that basically just fits a sleeping bag in it, and that thing will keep me warm on very cold nights just the fact that it's a tent. My body heat is trapped in there, the air is warmer, etc. Another way to do this, if you don't have a huge budget, a mosquito net. I, I'm serious. Try it. Mosquito nets are not very expensive. They can fit over your sleeping bag, over your bed. You do need a way to suspend them. But they keep the air around you warmer, and that makes a huge difference. All right, what else can you do if you have a sleeping bag or whatever you're sleeping in? I can't emphasize enough the value of a hot water bottle. If you have a source for hot water, whether it's out of a hot water heater or you can boil water or you can stop at a rest area and get hot water, however you do it, fill up a bottle with hot water. The bigger the bottle, the better. The hotter the water, the better. I actually bought an old-fashioned hot water bottle, and that's what I use. And throw that down by your feet, and it's going to keep you warm for many, many hours. But you can also just use a Nalgene bottle or I've used coke bottles. Any kind of bottle will work. Water holds a lot of heat. It takes a lot of energy to heat up water and it takes a lot of time for that energy to disperse. So don't forget that. Now, if you do not have access to hot water and you want to do something similar, they sell this product called Hot Hands. There are these little chemical packets that are kind of look like tea bags. When you expose them to air, the chemicals inside them oxidize and produce heat. A lot of heat like 130 degrees worth of heat. And they tend to last six, seven, eight hours. These things tend to be used at ski resorts and places like that. But I have thrown them in my sleeping bag. I attach one to my socks. Sometimes I will just have one by my chest. And as the night goes on, it's just kind of the source of warmth that I can get closer to or farther away from. They cost maybe 50 cents to a dollar a piece, but that's well worth it on a really cold night. And I always have some with me in the van. They sell them in different sizes. I'll have a link in the show notes to those. Uh, They're really good. All right, moving up a level, the next way to heat your van, the next simplest way, is something that burns. And that includes wood, it includes alcohol, it includes propane, and it includes diesel. Now, wood, obviously, if you're in a dire situation, you can burn wood. But you can't just start a campfire in your van, folks. People have done it. It's a very bad idea. If you are going to investigate adding a wood burner to your van, 
excellent, good for you, but I highly recommend that you buy something made for that purpose and you have to pay very, very close attention to clearances and how the chimney works. You will light your van on fire if you don't do this right or you will kill yourself with fumes. So very important to pay attention. Most of the time you have to remove the chimney if you want to move the van. Forresty Forrest, once again, I talk about him a lot, but in his van, he has a wood burner and he has a chimney that he sticks up. And if he's driving, he just takes it down. This works great, uh, but you have to tend these things often. They're very small and you have to keep adding fuel. So it's not like you can set it up for the night and then just go to sleep. You're probably gonna wake up and it's gonna be cold and you wanna start it again. Moving on to propane, you hear a lot about buddy heaters, Olympian wave heaters. These are a catalytic heater. They don't burn propane so much as they catalyze it, which is just a, a different chemical reaction. And that chemical reaction produces a lot of heat and a lot of water vapor rather than carbon monoxide, which is a bad thing. And yes, side note, always have a carbon monoxide detector in your van, regardless of whatever you're doing. Buddy heaters and Olympian wave heaters do work I think they're kind of a, a secondary solution. I don't like them as a permanent solution for a couple of reasons. One is that they use a lot of propane. A one pound green bottle of propane, you know, the normal size bottle, will last you one night on an Olympian Wave 3 on low, but you won't even get through a night with a buddy heater. You'll need to use at least two, and those things can be expensive, and then you've got a waste problem. So there's that problem. The other is that all that water vapor in there, while it can help you feel warmer at first, eventually is gonna condense on your walls and cover your windshield and ice, and you've got that problem too. So I have an Olympian Wave 3. I like it. It does help heat the van somewhat, but it's not as good as what I have now, and I think if you can, this is probably the best solution for a reasonable amount of money, and that is the diesel parking heater. This is a device that has a glow plug like a diesel engine has, a combustion chamber and a fan, and then circuitry to control the burn and you mount it permanently in your vehicle. Despite what people may say, there are no portable ones of these. They're always permanent because like a wood-burning stove, you need to drill holes through the van and have exhaust go outside the van. You do not have any other options for this. <laughs> the all-in-one units that you see, sure, they're all-in-one, but they are also permanently attached to the van, so, so don't make that mistake. They do require some effort to install. You do have a diesel tank to deal with, or if you're lucky like I was, your tank may already have a tap installed and you can go straight to your main fuel tank in your vehicle. But these things produce a lot of heat. And the amount of diesel that you can hold in the tank is more than enough for one, two, or three nights, depending on the weather. I mean, maybe even longer. So they're a good option. They give you a nice controlled heat and it is a dry heat. You're not gonna have moisture problems with these. Your only issue is will you have enough fuel and did you install it correctly? The other thing they need, and people don't talk about this enough, is that they need a robust battery system because they will draw 10 to 12 amps when they start up. Now over time, they don't use that much battery power, but at startup they do because they have to heat up the chamber and heat up the glow plug. So you need a battery that can do that and you never ever wanna use your starter battery for that because starter batteries are sacred. You should always have a separate battery for that. Now, should you get an Eberspatcher versus the quote-unquote cheap Chinese diesel heater? Eberspatchers and the other brands like that are 10 times more expensive than the Chinese diesel heaters. 
they're basically the same thing. The Eberspatchers are higher quality. They have better controllers. They have better quality finishes. There, there's more testing done with them. But you can get 10 Chinese diesel heaters for the same price. So to me, to my value standards, the cheap Chinese diesel heater is the better way to go. You can do what you think is best. Now, there are also propane heaters that are vented. These are traditional RV propane heaters, like Propex is one, and Truma makes one, and there's a bunch of other companies. These are great. The problem with them is they take up a lot of space, and you have to have a dedicated propane tank somewhere in your vehicle, and that has to be safely installed. So I've got the 72 Winnebago. It has one of these in it. It's wonderful. It's just like your heated home. If that's what you're after, then you can do that, but they're expensive. They take up a lot of space and you do need to have a permanently installed propane tank. After you figured out that part, now is when you worry about insulation. And I will just say briefly to remember that Reflectix is only insulation if there's a significant air gap between the Reflectix and whatever you're trying to insulate from. Foams are probably the optimal point right now. Uh, polyiso foams and styrofoam even, although styrofoam has serious fire risks. Those are probably the cheapest way to get a good R value on your walls. And from there, you can go to Thinsulate. And I know people like the wool. They think it's all natural and whatever but honestly yeah it comes from sheep but then they spray it with chemicals to keep insects out of it and i don't know i think it's way way overpriced so i'm not a big fan of havelock wool people have installed it and they say they like it again you do what you want to do I don't think insulation is as important as people think it is because it's very, very easy to produce enough heat in your vehicle to overcome any kind of insulation problem. It's more difficult if you're cooling. So if you live in an area that's cold, you only need enough insulation to prevent things from condensing on the walls. That's really it. And I've talked a lot about that, and I will talk more about that. It's clearly a big topic. <laughs> And the last thing we'll talk about regarding insulation is electric heat. Generally, you can't do that. Now, there are 12-volt electric blankets that might work if you have a good battery system, but any kind of electric heat is going to draw so much battery power that you're generally not going to have enough to take care of that. Plus, you're going to want to use it in the winter when solar power is less available, so you have to find a way to charge your batteries. But there's one exception to all that, and I'm doing this right now. If you have a way to plug into shore power, electric heat is absolutely the way to go. Oh, I have this little space heater that I plug in. It's 1,500 watts. Heats up the entire Winnebago. It more than heats up my van. I swear I could fry eggs in front of the one in my van. And my little scamp, it heats that up too. And this thing was $20. If you have shore power, that is absolutely the way to go. If you're worried about space heaters tipping over and stuff like that, they do sell these oil-filled radiator heaters that are much safer, but they're also much bigger and they take longer to heat up. Anyway, that is a very basic, very quick overview of all the ways to heat your van. Always happy to hear your comments and ideas. And again, every single one of those things I just said can be its own topic for another show. And if you go back in time, it probably is. Tech Talk. I told you I had a bad week. So I uh, drove up to get the scamp in South Dakota last week, and that was a whole adventure too. Uh, <laughs> I'm having lots of adventures lately, and they're not the kind I want. But on the way out to South Dakota, I saw a brand new Jiffy Lube, and what excited me about that was it had enormous bays. 
And I thought, you know what? I'm just going to run in for a quick oil change. And I did. And they changed the oil. And there was a whole lot of drama, but it had nothing to do with the oil. We'll set that aside. And everything was great. And I thought, good, I've changed the oil in my van. I wasn't sure when it was last changed. And it's like $800 to have Mercedes do it and all this stuff. And I just, I just wanted to know I had good oil in there. So it was like 275 bucks, which you know, it's a lot for these vehicles because they take 13.2 quarts of oil. And again, I have a a 2011 Sprinter. And I thought it was great. And then about a week later, after I drove all the way to South Dakota and back, I noticed there was a little drip coming out of the van. And yeah, then it turned into a big drip. In fact, uh, I was away from home down in the land I own on the Illinois River when I noticed that it was leaking a lot of oil. In fact, lost a quart of oil just due to leaking over the course of a week. That's a lot of oil, even even in a vehicle like this. So I immediately called Mercedes to set up an appointment. And uh, yeah, they're not going to be able to see the vehicle for a week. So yeah, you know, what am I going to do? I start driving back to Chicago, and then the alternator light comes on. Now, those of you who know things about engines know exactly what that means. Does it mean my alternator went bad? No, probably not. What it means is that oil dripped all over the serpentine belt, and the serpentine belt slipped off and got eaten by the fan, which is exactly what happened, leaving me stranded on the side of the road. More on that later. What I wanted to talk about was serpentine belts. Now, if you have a newer van, probably anything made in the 2000s, you have a single belt under your hood, and it's called the serpentine belt, and that's because it has to wrap around everything like a snake, a serpent. This belt is very, very important to your vehicle. If it breaks, you're done. You lose all. You lose your power steering, you lose your alternator, you lose your smog pump. I mean, anything that requires, your air conditioning's long gone, anything that requires your engine's power, with the exception of the transmission, is gone. So, Inspect your serpentine belts regularly and have them replaced when you need to because this is a part that you do not want to have go bad, like mine did. Now, if you're in an emergency situation and your serpentine belt breaks, what do you do? Well, you are probably not going to have any cooling for your engine, so you will overheat if you drive without the serpentine belt, and you're not going to have power steering. You're going to have it, find it very, very difficult to steer. But in an emergency situation, you can drive the vehicle for maybe 10 minutes at a time, and then wait an hour, and then drive it for another 10 minutes, and you can limp home. Now, in older vans, you've got a whole bunch of different belts. I mean, I know my Winnebago has like four belts, and there's basically a belt for each thing. There's a belt for the alternator, there's a belt for the fan, there's a belt for the power steering. You need to do the same, but just with those belts. But the serpentine belts are catastrophic if they fail. And I just want to bring that to your attention. If you're someone who's not familiar with vehicles, go out and open your hood, and you will see a belt that spins around. That's your serpentine belt. It's a very important maintenance item. Make sure you check on it frequently and have it replaced when it needs to be. Tales from the road. So I was back out in Utah where I had a lot of adventures, as you can tell if you've listened to the show for any length of time. And I'm up in what is called Research Park in Salt Lake City, which is now filled with buildings. It's, it, I went back there to visit a couple of years ago and I couldn't find my way around because there's so many buildings out there. 
But when I was there, there were only a few buildings, including the lab that I worked at, and the rest was just fields. And in one of those fields, we grew, well, I grew mostly tomatoes, but there was also sweet potatoes out there and corn and kale lilies, actually, was another thing we grew out there. Oh, and uh, some, and some brassicas, some broccoli. Anyway, it was a research field, and we used it for a bunch of different things. I was basically the farm manager, so every year I had to go out and do what was called a deep plow. And I would get on the tractor and put on the big plow. I mean, imagine a plow. Even if you don't know what a plow is, that's what it was. Whatever you have in your mind, that's what it is. The big knife that cuts into the dirt. And I would pile rocks on it because that's what you do, even though it really doesn't matter. You do that anyway. And then I would drive up and down the field, making big holes in the ground that I knew I would have to actually smooth out later because that's the next process. This takes time. You can't really drive very fast when you're doing this. And I was driving across very slowly, listening to something on my headphones, and I noticed there was a bee. And then I noticed there was another bee, and then I noticed there were 900 bees. I was surrounded by bees. They were everywhere. And in the short amount of time I had to think, I was like, did I run over a bee's nest? I'm in an empty field. Why would there be bees here? And I knew they were bees and not yellow jackets. I could tell that pretty quickly. And I was just like, what is going on? It was completely confusing. So I did what any rational person would do. I jumped off the tractor and ran away. Now, when you jump off a tractor and run away, an old tractor, the tractor doesn't care. It keeps on going and keeps doing what it was doing. So the tractor was plowing right along as I was running away. Now, it was a big enough field that this was only going to be a problem eventually. I had a little bit of time in which I could maybe go back and catch up with the tractor. But to my dismay, the bees were following the tractor. And I couldn't figure this out. Did I, like, get honey on the tractor? Was there something about the tractor that was attracting them? And then I took a step back from my panic and started relying on what I knew about bees and realized what I was witnessing. And what I was witnessing was a swarm. This was a hive of bees, a colony of bees, moving from one hive to another. And when they do that... They fly in a bee line, you've heard that term before, a straight line, and they do not sting. Their focus is on getting to that other hive exclusively, and you could go in there and swat at them, and they're not going to mess with you. So I was in no danger, except that I couldn't get back to my tractor, which was, you know, heading towards the lab, actually, towards the parking lot anyway. And it just happened that the route I was taking with my tractor completely aligned with the route the bees were taking. So they were keeping pace. But eventually, the bees went faster than the tractor, and they flew off to wherever they were going. And I was able to run and catch up to the tractor, hop onto it, and everything was fine. I know you were hoping for some tragedy, like I spent three weeks in the hospital with all these bee stings, or the tractor ran over the president's car and caught fire and exploded. Yeah, I'm sorry, I'm not Michael Bay. I can't offer those things to you. I only have real life to offer you, but it was an interesting moment to see nature in action and to try to calculate the odds of the path of my tractor being exactly the path of a swarm of bees. Why do I have so many bee stories? I don't even like bees. I don't know very strange, but uh, you live long enough and strange things happen. Product review. <laughs>
All right. It's really difficult for me to talk about this. Uh, my Sprinter is now in the shop. As I told you earlier, I broke down on the side of the road and then spent five hours waiting for a tow truck. And it was because there was oil leaking in my van. Now, I mentioned Jiffy Lube before. Timing-wise, it certainly matches up that Jiffy Lube had something to do with this. I don't know the answer yet because I'm still waiting on the Mercedes dealer to even look at the van. <sighs> it is possible that they put the filter in wrong. On these vehicles, the filter is up high, and if the filter's put in wrong, oil will leak out all over the serpentine belt. It kind of makes sense. Or it could be the oil filter housing, which is notorious for breaking on these vehicles, and that's what went wrong. I don't know yet. And that's why I want to review this vehicle for you so that you know what you're getting into if you decide to get one. Okay, so there was this problem with the oil filter or the oil filter housing, that area somewhere. I can't blame Mercedes if the Jiffy Lube people screwed up. I mean, that's not their fault. I can blame Mercedes if this part keeps breaking. And it's a $1,300, $1,400 repair, by the way, for this broken housing. I'm probably going to have to do that no matter what. But the truth is that the NCV3 Sprinters, that is from year 2008 to 2016, are extremely complex vehicles. They're very hard to work on. And because of that, they tend to have a lot of problems and it is very difficult to get them fixed. Mercedes dealers that work on sprinters, they don't all, are few and far between, and getting in there to have them worked on takes a lot of time and a lot of money. For my vehicle to get towed all the way to Chicago from Utica, Illinois, which is about 89 miles, it took AAA hours to find anybody who would even do it. The person who came to do it came out of Davenport, Iowa. And then to tow my van, he had to remove the drive shaft. So right now the drive shaft is inside my van, you know, in the living area where you try to keep big, long, heavy, greasy things out of. Yeah, I'm dealing with that right now. And once I got to Mercedes, of course, this happened on a Sunday, they were closed. So we literally had to break through security into the parking lot to leave my van. Unfortunately, we found out that security was fake. There was nobody there. They had security cars with lights on and all this stuff, but there were no people. <laughs> and we only left a vehicle. We didn't take any, so it's all cool. There were 660 other Sprinter vans waiting for service there. And it may not be till the end of next week before they can even look at mine. And then if they have the parts, it'll be another several days. And they've had some vans there for four months because they can't get parts. So if you are looking at Sprinter vans, they are fun vehicles. I love this thing. I love driving in it. It is a wonderful vehicle if everything's working. They get decent mileage. They perform really well. But you have to be very flexible because it will break on you or it has a very good chance of it. And then getting that repaired is a problem. If you are someone who likes to work on your own vehicles, okay, there's a lot you can do. Like this oil filter housing, if I were willing to invest an entire day and maybe a couple hundred dollars in tools and then maybe $200 for the part, I could repair it myself. But it requires draining all the oil out of the engine and taking apart the entire front end and the serpentine belt, which in my case is easy because it's not there anymore. Anyway, you get the point. So the Sprinter this year's 2008 to 2016 is all I can really talk about. Great vehicles, very expensive vehicles to own, very expensive vehicles to buy, and they cost a lot of time. 
And because of that, I think you're going to be better off with a Transit or a ProMaster. Yep, I said it. I think you're better off with a Transit or a ProMaster. They've got problems too. No van is perfect, but you're going to find it a lot easier to get service for them than you are for a Sprinter. And it can be a very, very important thing. That's my review of Sprinters. I know people love their older Sprinters, and I know people love their newer Sprinters, and I know a lot of people love the model I have. And I love my van. Don't get me wrong. I, I love my van. It's just kind of a difficult love sometimes. And know what you're signing up for if you decide to go that way. A place to visit. I've already talked about this, actually. I know it was in episode 18, just as COVID was starting to happen. But I'm going to talk about it again, because I was just there. And this is the world's largest truck stop on I-80 in Walcott, Iowa. If you are driving across the country on I-80, I do recommend you stop here. It, it's just, it's, it's amazing how big this place is. It has everything. It's the only truck stop I know of with a dentist. <laughs> they have a dentist. They have a masseuse. They have a chiropractor, which I recommend you avoid. They have a food court, a massive store, a chrome shop, which if you're not familiar with that term, it is where truckers buy the chrome on their vehicles. And it also has a laundry and a museum of trucks that can take a couple hours to go through. And one of the most important things for us is they have all sorts of 12-volt accessories. Like, if you wanted to see what the 12-volt Road Pro oven looked like or felt like or any of that, yeah, you can go check it out there. And they'll have the Hot Logic one, too. And they have all kinds of fans and moldings, which can be very nice. They have gasket material. It's a good place to go just to familiarize yourself with all this stuff. Their prices are retail prices. It's not like you're going to get any great bargains, but you're going to be able to see this stuff and at least get ideas. They also sell small mattresses and pillows, basically anything for living off the road you can find here. And the way retail works these days, it's hard to find a showroom that has all this stuff. So if you're on I-80, it's in eastern Iowa. You can't miss it. It's gigantic. <laughs> it is huge. And, uh, you know, it's kind of fun, too. And it makes a nice way to break up the monotony of I-80, which, face it, can be very monotonous. Resource recommendation. Yes, folks, I'm going to talk about AAA one more time. We've talked about it a lot. AAA offers free towing, or two free tows a year, or however that works. It varies by region, because every AAA is a part of a different club. They have different policies. But in reality, that can be very difficult. And I know there have been a lot of problems with people being refused a tow because they have a quote-unquote commercial vehicle. So I'm going to tell you my experience because I've had AAA tow me three times this year and I have certainly saved money by having AAA this year. So I have an ambulance, <laughs> a Sprinter 144, which used to be an ambulance, and I have a Winnebago and I've had them both towed this year. And both times I was able to get it done. But they asked me if it was a commercial vehicle. Folks, you don't have a commercial vehicle. Yeah, okay, some insurance companies might consider it a commercial vehicle. Other people might consider it a commercial vehicle. But when you are asked the question, is it a commercial vehicle, you always say no. Remember Ghostbusters? If you're asked if you're a god, you say yes. Yeah, same thing here, except in reverse. You do not have a commercial vehicle. 
They called three different towing places for my most recent incident. Two of them just flat out refused, and the third called me and said, is it a commercial vehicle? And I answered, truthfully, no. Why? Because first off, I own it personally. I'm not using it for business. Second off, it's registered as an RV, which I'm very glad I did, and it might be a suggestion for you too. It's an RV. It's not a commercial vehicle. No commercial vehicle can have RV plates. That's the end of the discussion. Now, different tow companies might disagree with that and say, oh, we can't tow that. It's too tall. It's too heavy. Whatever. But back to AAA. AAA will keep on it. And they did for me. That's why it took five hours for them to come and tow me. It's because AAA kept on it, kept calling and kept calling. But you have to be proactive. Don't trust your phone that says our estimate is that they will be there in one hour. No. Call AAA as many times as you need to, at least once an hour, until there is a tow truck at your site. Very important. And um, the rest of the services AAA offers, I don't know, they're kind of less important to me. For me, right now, all AAA is is a phone number to call if I break down to get some help. It's not perfect. There's a chance they will reject you. But I don't know of anything better and... All I can say is I've done right by me this year. I mean, I've had three toes. One of them was 100 miles, and I'd never paid a cent. All I did, well, I tipped the driver, but that's up to me. And uh, so, yeah, um, I do recommend you get the RV coverage. If you are going to get AAA, pay for the RV coverage and pay for plus two. Basically, get the best plan you can because that's going to motivate AAA to find someone to tow you. And so, yeah, at this point, I'm recommending AAA. They've done right by me despite their imperfections. <laughs> well, folks, that's it. That's the episode 142. I am vanless. Oh, hopefully, when I talk to you again, I'll have my van, but I seriously doubt it. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And until next time, remember the words of Napoleon Hill that I'm trying to focus on at the moment. Every adversity, every failure, every heartache carries with it the seed of an equal or greater benefit. I hope.